Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe that we're almost towards the end of July. Hard to believe we are also um, at the end of another week. Um, Hard to believe that tomorrow is the start of the Olympics. I certainly hope that the Olympics go well, considering all that's going on. Hard to believe last year there was no Olympics, and now they're able to um, make up for it um, this year. But let's hope that everything can go as smooth as possible, considering that there won't be any uh, spectators in the stands. Well, here we are again discussing signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution. We will uh, be discussing um, a new state. But then again, it um, it would make practical sense to to talk about a new state, considering that we just uh, talked about New Jersey a couple of uh, days ago. But what's going to be unique about the state that we're going to be discussing next is that we, we will be doing a two-part series on this one. And I'm sure many of you all are wondering why, for this particular state, would, would there be the need to do a two-part series? Well, I'm going to start off with a uh, lead-off bonus question that will answer the question for you all. Which state led the way with most delegates attending the Constitutional Convention? Was it Virginia? Was it Pennsylvania? Or was it North Carolina? Your choices were the following. Choice A, Virginia. Choice B, Pennsylvania. Choice C, North Carolina. The answer is choice B, Pennsylvania. How many um, delegates attended the Constitutional Convention from Pennsylvania, considering that the convention itself was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? I'll give you some numbers. Was it, is it choice A being eight? Was it choice, is it choice B being six? Or was it choice, is it choice C, ten? The answer is choice A, eight. Now, many of you all are probably thinking to yourself, how can we talk about eight delegates in a two-part episode or two-part series? Well, I'll tell you all this much right now. Uh, We will not talk about all eight delegates, but I've decided to talk about four out of the eight delegates. So therefore, that means that tonight's podcast episode we will discuss uh two of the two of the four and then in the other uh podcast when i'm on the air again next we will discuss the remaining two who was the oldest delegate in attendance at the constitutional convention here's some choices for you guys pay very careful attention was it choice a george washington was it choice b Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania? Was it choice C, Rufus King of Massachusetts? Or was it choice D, Roger Sherman of Connecticut? Your answer is the following, choice B, Benjamin Franklin. And how old exactly was Benjamin Franklin at the start of the Constitutional Convention? Was he over the age of 80? Was he in his mid-70s, or was he in his mid mid to late 80s? Well, the answer is um, 
choice A, he was just over the age of 80. He was 81 years old in 1787. You know, very few people at that time were living to be in their 80s. And yet Benjamin Franklin is a rare example, and really it's fair to say in the elite minority. I do think it's fair to say that he will be the first of our uh, two delegates that we will be discussing in this uh, podcast episode. So, for starters, if I should ask you all this. If Benjamin Franklin was 81 years old in 1787, what year was he born? Was he born in 1705 or 1706? He was born on January 17th, 1706. You know, I can't imagine what the world must have looked like in 1706 when he was born. But I can tell you this much. The world he grew up in was would not have come anywhere close to the world that all of us uh, live in today. That's not to say that when Benjamin Franklin was growing up that there were challenges but in terms of accessibility, in terms of getting the news, uh, that was a far, um, how do I say it, a, a far cry compared to our extreme levels of accessibility in today's um, modern um, day world where um, accessibility and conveniences are far more greater than they were 250 years ago at best. So we know that Benjamin Franklin was born on January 17th, 1706. It's fair to say that he's the oldest of all our forefathers. He's pretty much 37 years older than Thomas Jefferson. He's just over 25 years older than George Washington. He's close to being 30 years older than John Adams. And a good 16 years older than John Adams' cousin Samuel. Now, did... Is Benjamin Franklin um, a native of Philadelphia, or did he hail from a, another uh, prominent city in colonial America? Well, he hailed from another prominent city. Is he a native of uh, Boston, Massachusetts? Is he a native of New York City? Or is he a native of Providence, Rhode Island? The answer is uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah, believe it or not, folks, Benjamin Franklin is a native of Boston, Massachusetts. He doesn't come from a prominent family, but he is the son of a Boston candle maker. You know, even uh, being in the candle making profession can be noble. But let me ask you this. Did Benjamin Franklin try uh, the candle making um, craft? Yes, he did. But it just wasn't uh, meant to be. In other words, he tried, but he, but he knew deep down that this just wasn't going to be the right fit for him long term. So at age 12, he gets apprenticed to his brother James, whom taught his younger brother, being Ben Franklin, everything about the printing trade. Okay, if one uh, profession doesn't work out, you've got to find something else. But I could tell you this much, you can't spend five to six months trying to figure out what it is you want to do. You've got to be able to figure out uh, within a short period of time, hey, what is it that I can do? And if I'm not good at something that I want to be good at, I've got to learn from the best. And who does young Ben Franklin learn the best from? Learns it from his brother. 
Sometimes it's best to learn uh, from within your own family, especially if you've got another family member out there who really knows his or her stuff. So at what age did young Ben Franklin journey to Philadelphia? Did he journey uh, when he was over the age of 20? Uh, or did he journey just over the age of 15? What do you all think? He journeyed to Philadelphia after the age of 15, but they know that um, it was around the age of 17. And he did this around the year 1723. He started working in various printer shops within the city, but was encouraged by Pennsylvania's governor to go overseas to England and obtain further apprentice studies. Now, why do you think that the governor of Pennsylvania wanted Benjamin Franklin to go to England? He wasn't forcing Franklin to leave Pennsylvania, but he saw something in Franklin that made him say, hey, if you really want to be a true successful, um, if you want to be successful in the printing trade, maybe you need to go overseas and learn and take what you've learned and apply it to uh, different settings and also apply or rather learn information that you didn't know beforehand so that when you do come back to America, your chances of establishing your own printing business will be greater. So, after spending some time overseas in England, what year will Ben Franklin go about setting up his own printing house in Philadelphia? Was it 1725? Is it 17? 30 or 1728? The answer is choice C, 1728. That's the year that Benjamin Franklin goes about setting up his uh, printing house in Philadelphia, 22 years old. And come a year later in 1729, Franklin becomes the publisher of his own newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. He's not even 25 years old just yet, but look what he's already accomplished. What annual did Franklin himself create, which is still in use today? It's an almanac that you could find at the grocery stores. You could even find it even at the local pharmacy. It's called Poor Richard's Almanac, or what we might refer to as the Farmer's Almanac. The almanac contains um, the calendars, or, or you know, the calendar year weather, weather forecasts that the um, that are uh, predicted uh, per each region. Poems, sayings to astronomy information. Farmers were enthralled by the pamphlet itself regarding its agrarian use. An almanac was first published on December 28, 1732. And who um, was born in 1732, a famous forefather of ours, folks. He would go on to become the father of our country, George Washington. And during its first years of existence, folks, roughly 10,000 copies were sold yearly. So Benjamin Franklin's on a roll, folks. He, um, he's really got, um, got the groove. He's got, um, he's got, he's got stuff that he could sell to people not just one time around people who are coming back for information year in and year out. 
Franklin was Franklin himself an avid inventor? If anybody says no, then um, they have obviously haven't done enough research on Benjamin Franklin, but the answer is yes. What did some of his inventions range from? Well, we all know about the lightning rod. Of course, we've all been told that he flew a kite out in a bad rainstorm where there was lightning. I highly, I highly believe that that was not the case, but whoever... Um, did that famous picture of Benjamin Franklin flying his kite out in a bad lightning storm was probably trying to um, prove that Franklin had made such a phenomenal discovery that that electricity itself was was perhaps bigger than life. Of course we don't have a light bulb by that time but obviously Franklin's um, use of the uh, lightning rod obviously uh, was just something that was uh, revolutionary for its time. I, I could tell you this much, that uh, Franklin himself um, strongly advised Thomas Jefferson to um, install a metal um, dome roof up at Monticello because most um, roofs were made out of wood. And had, that, had Jefferson not resorted to a metal dome roof for his Monticello mansion, his home would have gone up in flames had it been struck by lightning, considering that, you know, most wooden structures, once they were struck by lightning, they pretty much went up in flames. So one forefather helping another one, despite the age difference. So besides the lightning rod, we know that Benjamin Franklin also invented bifocal glasses. And uh, just a few weeks back, my wife and I were in Philadelphia, and we got to visit the Benjamin Franklin Museum, and that's a phenomenal museum. For any of you all who would like to learn more about Mr. Benjamin Franklin, I strongly recommend visiting the museum. Uh, we saw many things there. I mean, it, the uh, museum is basically five exhibits. Uh, you don't have; it wouldn't take the whole day to do it, but it is well worth the time. We saw what was called the Franklin stove. This is something that he that Franklin himself invented. But what makes the Franklin stove unique is that it was a um, a metal-lined fireplace which had a metal panel that would direct the flow of a fire's fume, or rather, uh, that the flow of the fire's fumes enabling more heat to be directed to rooms air or from fires or rather the fires fumes where there would be more heat versus less smoke so in other words benjamin franklin was trying to perfect the um, stove not just an ordinary stove but a stove where um, where the panel itself could direct the flow of the fires fumes in a direction or in directions where there would be more heat for better ventilation purposes versus the smoke which would lead to other um, unforeseeable problems. Well besides being an inventor, Franklin was an ardent philanthropist and I think most of us know what a philanthropist is but for those of you who have not heard of a philanthropist that is someone who is very generous with his or her money giving money to uh, charitable uh, causes, giving money to, say, their college alma mater, university, giving money where it is needed. 
And when I tend to think of philanthropists, I think of those who who are usually associated with old money. In other words, they don't the individual doesn't go around flaunting what they have, but they go about using their money without without uh, how do I say it without getting um, without letting the whole world know right away. In other words, they go about doing it in a, in a professional manner. There's an old saying, old money and uh, new money don't always go, um, they don't, old versus new money, or rather I should say old and new money don't always go hand in hand. You know, when I think of new money, I tend to think of, you know, people just, you know, constantly flaunting what they have and, and not using their money where it should go. They're usually blowing it on themselves um, and, and spending it like there's no tomorrow. People who have who come from old money are going to know how to spend their money and use it for the proper purposes, but they're not going to blow it all in one setting. So as for Benjamin Franklin, he is an ardent philanthropist in Philadelphia. He helped create many firsts, the first American hospital, as well as a library, to a volunteer fire department. He also helped create an academy, which later became Penn, Penn University, Ivy League school. It's fair to say that Benjamin Franklin is one of those individuals who doesn't miss out on anything. But then again, a lot of our forefathers were like that. They didn't miss out on anything. Here's an interesting question for you all. How many decades did Benjamin Franklin himself spend living overseas in Europe? For those of you who don't know why Benjamin Franklin spent many of uh, years overseas in Europe, I'll tell you that here in a second. But he spent um, nearly three decades living overseas in Europe. He spent many of times in England and France serving as ambassador to both nations. So we have to remember, folks, Benjamin Franklin's not, I mean, you know, some of, if you have um, money, then yes, you could take a leisure trip overseas to Europe. But I believe it's fair to say that many of our forefathers who did travel overseas were not going at leisurely expense. They were going for political purposes, but yes, did find the time to do leisurely things, but it wasn't all about leisure activity. While in England around 1766, okay, 1766, um, what do you think is going on, folks, around this time? We're, the, the French and Indian War has ended three years earlier in 1763. But is it fair to say that during the mid-1760s, especially in a few years after the French and Indian War has come to an end, that, um, that colonists are very unhappy with the mother country? Yes, they are. So Benjamin Franklin becomes America's spokesperson where he voiced opposition for all 13 colonies with regards to having to pay their share of the war or let alone their share of the costs in the aftermath of the French and Indian War. Now, I do know this, that when my wife and I went to Williamsburg before going to Philadelphia, we were told uh, that that the British Treasury was in debt up to somewhere that would be like the equivalent of up to like $130 million 
in debt. That would be like in American dollars. The colonists had about a $3 million debt, I, was, I believe I was told. I mean, there's a huge difference between like a $3 million debt versus what the mother country experienced being $130 million. While the Americans did their part at home to pay for their share of the costs, they were being asked to do more than perhaps what was necessary. So that is why Benjamin Franklin is speaking on behalf of the 13 colonies with regards to their opposition and having to pay additional costs that, uh, that, the Brit that they felt that the mother country should be responsible for taking care of on their end without having to um, impose further burdens on her subjects, a.k.a. the 13 colonies. Here's a question for you all that's important. Where did Benjamin Franklin report to on May 5th, 1775, after completing his second mission to England? Okay, May 1775. Um, to me, that's important because in September of 1774, the First Continental Congress uh, was established. And in October of 1774, the delegates agreed that they would meet again seven months later, okay, October 1774 to May 1775, that's about seven months. So Benjamin Franklin arrives to Philadelphia as a delegate to attend the Second Continental Congress. Remember, folks, the First Continental Congress, they uh, the delegates convened um, in response to um, the intolerable, aka coercive acts, which um, punished the city of, uh, which punished the people of Boston for their actions uh, in the aftermath of the Boston Tea Party incident from December of 1773. So here, here we are once again. The uh, delegates will be convening in um, 17 in May of 1775 to discuss more issues that um, unfortunately were not resolved on England's end within that uh, seven-month time frame. Now, June of 1776, Benjamin Franklin gets appointed as a member to the Committee of Five. Okay, Should we, shouldn't we all know about the Committee of Five? Why are they important? Why is that committee important, folks? Because that's the committee that drafts and presents to Congress as an entire body the Declaration of Independence. This committee of five met from June 11th of 1776 to July 5th of 1776. Now, of course, I know July 4th is our um, is the United States' birthday, but why is J July 5th of 1776 important? Because that's the day that the Declaration of Independence itself was was first officially published. So remember, folks, uh, we've all been told for years that, you know, the delegates came together for a few days, worked out their issues, and the Committee of Five presented the, this spectacular document before the rest of uh, the delegates in attendance. That's not how it worked, folks. If the Committee of Five had met from June 11th of 1776 up until July 5th, isn't it fair to say that Men like Benjamin Franklin himself and John Adams, those two in particular, they were the ones that um, did a majority of um, revisions. In other words, they were the ones that um, 
assisted Jefferson with Thomas Jefferson, that is, with making the necessary revisions. There were 86 revisions, folks. Uh, Jefferson, unfortunately, didn't get it right the first time, but I can only imagine being in his shoes and thinking to myself, how many more revisions will it take before everybody agrees? But remember, folks, even the Declaration of Independence has to be worded right. You know, Jefferson even went as far as mentioning a grievance about slavery. The South Carolina delegation really was concerned about it. After all, South Carolina was dependent upon the institution of slavery. The South Carolina delegates told Mr. Jefferson that, look, we're all for separation from England, but we can't support the document if you keep the part on slavery in terms of uh, one of the uh, grievances. So Jefferson had to revise it where, to where he had to take out the grievance on slavery. And that's how that matter was settled. Okay, besides Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin, who were the other two men on that committee of five folks? How about Robert Livingston of New York and Roger Sherman of Connecticut? Where was uh, Benjamin Franklin stationed from December of 1776 until 1785? Okay, so let's keep in mind, folks, he um, was gone for another 10 years overseas. Was he in England? Was he in Spain or was he in France? The answer is choice C. He was in France. Franklin helped secure between late 1777 and early 1778 an alliance with France for joining the Continental Army side in their fight, or rather I should say in their war against Britain. Securing the alliance with France was, was ultimately made possible with an American victory at Saratoga, New York on October 1770, in October of 1777, where uh, Continental um, Army General Horatio Gates defeated British General John Burgoyne. And the victory at Saratoga was so huge that France decided that now it was the right time to join the Americans. Why did France join the Americans, folks? Because France wanted to get payback as a result of having to be, have, as a result of having been forced to cede all of its territory to England as a result of being defeated in the French and Indian War. So if you've been defeated and you have the opportunity to get some payback, well, you better seize on that opportunity because it doesn't come very often. And I should also say, too, that uh, another important accomplishment that Benjamin Franklin achieved while um, serving, while being over in France, came in the early 1780s, uh, two years after the British surrender at Yorktown. He played a pivotal part in helping design the U.S. Britain Peace Accord, or rather the AKA, or rather AKA 1783 Treaty of Paris that ended the Revolutionary War altogether. 
Now, um, moving on now to uh, Benjamin Franklin's uh, role with the Constitutional Convention. Throughout most of the uh, Constitutional Convention, what all do you think Benjamin Franklin would have done? I mean, he's 81 years old. He still is highly regarded and respected. After all, he is the oldest delegate there. I mean, Benjamin Franklin has seen it all, folks. Is it fair to say that he is something of a sage, or what I would call a wise man? Yes. Throughout most of the convention, Franklin himself was known to break the ice. What do I mean by breaking the ice? I'm not talking about taking a chisel and, and breaking cubes of ice, folks. But what I mean by breaking the ice here is that Benjamin Franklin found ways to diffuse unpleasant situations. He found ways to diffuse tension amongst other delegates when they couldn't come to proper um, terms on issues that, um, that appeared to divide versus unite. So Benjamin Franklin was able to go about telling humorous stories. And by doing so, it gave the other delegates a chance to pause it gave them a chance to sit back and think to themselves, okay, let, let me uh, refocus my energy here and let me find a new strategy so that I don't go, say, 10 steps backwards. That's how Benjamin Franklin was able to keep other men on, um, on path to where they didn't lose their sanity altogether. Now, while attending uh, the convention, what did Benjamin Franklin support government-wise? Did he support a bicameral legislature or a unicameral legislature? Believe it or not, folks, he actually supported a unicameral legislature, being, meaning one-house legislature. He favored a weak presidency, and he advocated an idea a very unique one behind having a council of men work together as their own entity, or rather chief executive office. In other words, it is fair to say that Benjamin Franklin was very fearful of having power itself be placed in the hands of one person. In other words, he didn't want the presidency to be seen as another monarch position. After all, didn't uh, George Washington and the Continental Army go above and beyond to keep to win a war that resulted in keeping kings out of our country? Yes. In other words, we fought a war to uh, get rid of uh, tyranny that was 3,000 miles away, but tyranny that had deprived us of such inalienable rights like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Benjamin Franklin opposed the idea of giving broad powers to one person, like the president, he also opposed the idea of having politicians get paid for their service. If Benjamin Franklin knew how much uh, Congress people make today, he would be appalled. Benjamin Franklin believed that politicians needed to think about people as a whole rather than themselves, but that performing service was noble. In his eyes, Maybe it's fair to say Benjamin Franklin was in it for the outcome. Maybe he believed that politicians needed to be in it for the outcome versus the income. 
His closing remarks at the convention were very um, pivotal, but not just so much the closing remarks, but it was a speech that he wrote. And another um, close uh, friend of his read the speech because you have to remember, I mean, it's not so much that Benjamin Franklin was 81 years old, but he was just, it was very hard for him to be able to stand up and um, deliver the speech. So Benjamin Franklin included a message for all the delegates to take back to their states that they represented. And they would have to share this at their state conventions for constitutional ratification purposes. The message said the following, this document may not be perfect, but it's the best we can do. Okay? What we've come up with, signed by 39 men, it wasn't the grandest of documents, but it's the best 101 document that we can go by to not only offer to our constituents back home, but to serve as a guiding post or as a guide for proper governing, not just only for the present, but for future generations to come. So in other words, the document itself, it, it's not like the equivalent of a Cadillac. It might be the equivalent of a Chevrolet, but the bottom line is, is that you, that you came away with something, and it's up to you as the delegates to go about selling it to your constituents so that not only will it be around tomorrow, but it will be there for future generations to come. Not only did Benjamin Franklin live to see the Constitution get ratified, he also lived to see George Washington get elected as America's first president. Benjamin Franklin um, died one year after George Washington became president in 1790 at the age of 84. Believe it or not, folks, he would become the first Constitution signer to die. But at 84 years of age, he lived a remarkable life, folks. Our second delegate that we'll be discussing in this uh, podcast episode is a man named Robert Morris. Now, I'm sure many of you all probably don't know who Robert Morris is. But he was in that elite group of six men whom had signed, whom were still around that had signed the Declaration of Independence who took part in, um, the, in uh, not only debating the Constitution, but signing it in Philadelphia. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, was Robert Morris born in the 1730s? Or was he born in the 1720s or 1740s? He was born in the 1730s and was uh, born on January the 20th of 1734. But let me ask you this. Did he hail from the United States or from um, England? He was originally from Liverpool, England. Of course, when I think of Liverpool, England, I think of that famous uh, rock band um, that um, came to America to the United States in 1964. The Beatles. That's who I always think of when I hear of uh, Liverpool, England. But nonetheless, Robert Morris hails from Liverpool. He comes with his father to America while still in his teens. And he goes about establishing himself as a merchant in Philadelphia. Now, was young was Robert Morris's dad a man whom had many business connections? Yes, 
The elder Morris in 1749 sent Robert to Philadelphia, where he apprenticed under Charles Willing's, Willing's shipping and banking firm. So one thing I, had, I learned was that the uh, Morris family did not move to Philadelphia or settle in Philadelphia right away when coming to America. They actually settled in Maryland first. But um, Robert's father was, was a successful businessman in Maryland, so it is fair to say that he obviously had connections in Philadelphia. Now, in 1750, um, Robert's father sadly died, but left the majority of his estate to young Robert. And Robert performed so well for Charles Willing to where the firm got renamed Willing and Morris. Hey, if you can, if you can impress uh, the person whom you are being apprenticed to, then good things will come. Now, what happens to Robert Morris in 1769? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. He marries 20-year-old Mary White, who is the daughter of a well-to-do lawyer and landholder. He's 35 and she's 20. But we've got to remember this too, folks. I've said it before, I'll say it again. When a child was 10 years of age, and over the age of 10, he or she was considered an adult. So it was very common in colonial times for young men and women at the age of 15 and just over the age of 15 to marry. Now, uh, despite being one of the wealthiest merchants and bankers in Philadelphia, did Robert Morris speak out against uh, the 1765 Stamp Act? Yes. Morris himself teamed up with other Philadelphia merchants by forcing the local British customs agent to refrain from collecting new taxes. Over time, Morris himself signed um, a fair number of, of uh, non-importation agreements. What were uh, non-importation agreements, folks? They were agreements where the colonists agreed to... Um, boycott all British imports coming into America. Not just coming so much into America, but from coming into American ports. Usually when I think of uh, non-importation agreements, I tend to think of what the First Continental Congress achieved um, just before it uh, wrapped up in uh, 1774. While uh, Robert Morris himself didn't serve in the First Continental Congress, he did get elected to the Philadelphia committee that was assigned to enforce the British boycott. So, hey, you know, you've got to start out somewhere, but who knows? Something tells me that better things are to come for Robert Morris in terms of being involved with the Continental Congress movement. So my next question to you all is this one. Did Robert Morris attend the Second Continental Congress? Yes, and not only did he attend the Second Continental Congress, but he served on the Secret Committee of Trade, which oversaw acquisition of foreign goods being provided to the military. Okay, here we are, folks. You know, we don't have a whole lot of weapons in terms of rifles or muskets. We don't have, we don't have a whole lot of stuff. But who can provide us with the stuff? France can. 
Spain can. We sure as heck don't want want anything from England. After all, we're you know we're mad at England. We're mad at the mother country for all sorts of reasons. Well, besides serving on the Committee of Trade, Robert Morris also served on the Marine Committee, which oversaw the Continental Navy's needs and requests. Is it fair to say, though, that Robert Morris himself, maybe I shouldn't say it yet, but I'll just give you all a hint right now. Is it fair to say that he's got connections? Yes. We'll learn about more of those here uh, momentarily. But I should point out that when he attended the Second Continental Congress, he first started out aligning with non-radical delegates. If you are a non-radical delegate, are you in favor of complete separation from England, or are you in favor of, um, of uh, reconciliation? How about reconciliation? Yes, that doesn't mean that you still were in opposition to the Stamp Act, the Townshend Act, Quartering Act, or even to the Intolerable Acts. Yes, you, you could have been opposed to all those measures, but your hope and uh, desire by being a non-radical delegate is, is to be one who can um, still see the light at the end of the tunnel and with the hopes that, uh, that by extending the Olive Branch Petition, which, is, which was a um, means for reconciliation with Britain, that there still is hope that Britain will come to her senses and realize that, hey, look, we haven't treated our subjects well and they actually are trying to say something to us that, hey, they don't want separation from us, but we've got to do something better on our end to make amends. Well, did, did King George III take his sweet time to read the grievances that the colonists had addressed as a result of, of uh, their olive branch petition? No. Historians know that he didn't take his sweet time whatsoever. But when I think of other non-radical delegates, there's a, another noteworthy person um, like John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. However, in the end, um, Morris himself put his political differences aside and went about signing the Declaration of Independence. I think it's fair to say that Robert Morris did wake up and smelled the coffee in the end and realized that, hey, look, no matter how far we go with extending this olive branch petition, um, England's not going to budge. So that really leaves me with no other choice but to um, renounce my allegiance and, to, and go along with everyone else and declare separation from the mother country. After Congress had unanimously agreed to declare complete separation from England, did Robert Morris remain active in his efforts by securing money for the Revolutionary War? Yes. He was one of those figures whose financial connections went well beyond the confines of America. In other words, he had business dealings in the Caribbean. He had business dealings with France and Spain. So, it's fair to say that this, this guy is a man of uh, international connections. And yes, while connections are a good thing, others can say that it's not a good thing. But we also have to consider during this time, folks, that any connection that someone had 
as long as it was a connection that could benefit the cause, that is, the Continental Army's cause, and being able to go head-to-toe with the mightiest empire in the world, then you better take advantage of that connection, because if not, it will come back and bite you later on down the road. So I believe it's fair to say that our, that our forefathers valued connections because it was their way of not wanting to burn bridges with one another. When the Continental Army troops lacked essential provisions ranging from food and munition to shoes, Robert Morris was the person to go to because he was the one that had the financial resources for General Washington and his soldiers. Robert Morris went as far as helping fund money for key noteworthy battles like Trenton, 1776, the mission, you know, being victory or death, the, the battle that restored morale to the Continental Army, the battle that pretty much saved the Continental Army from complete collapse, the battle that kept Independence's um, cause alive, and then to Yorktown, 1781, where British General Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington. Remember, folks, fighting battles aren't free. It does require money. And that's why we have Robert Morris to thank for being able to fund such uh, fundamental, um, fundamental um, matters during this uh, seven-year war with the mother country. What post did Robert Morris get appointed to in 1781? Did he become um, did he become the finance superintendent? That is America's finance superintendent, or did he become um, America's Secretary of Commerce? Uh, he became America's finance superintendent, folks. He helped establish new procedures for supplying the military to creating America's first government incorporated bank. That would become the Bank of the Bank of North America, which was a precursor to Alexander Hamilton's Bank of the United States. Of course, it's always easy to assume that Alexander Hamilton was the leading financial guru, but let's keep in mind that there were other men who had the same amounts of financial smarts, like Alexander Hamilton and Robert Morris falls in that criteria. Was Robert Morris an advocate behind strong national government? Yes, especially considering the fact that he himself knew just how flawed the Articles of Confederation were. And on the first day of the Constitutional Convention, Robert Morris would be the first delegate whom went about nominating George Washington as convention president. Morris favored the national government having the power to do such things as imposing tariffs and taxes. In other words, Morris was not interested, or not so much not interested, he didn't think it was right whatsoever for 13 states to raise their own taxes and uh, pretty much leave the uh, national, whatever national government existed under the Articles of Confederation um, out in the dust to rot. He knew that there had to be complete overhaul. You know, it also should be pointed out that Robert Morris served in the United States Senate where he supported uh, federal tariffs, a national bank, federal mint, 
to funding the national debt. He helped play a role in enacting the first major piece of legislation after the constitutional um, after the Constitution got ratified. Do you know what act that was? It was the Tariff Act of 1789, which protected manufacturing industries, include, including raising money for the federal government. Remember, folks, when George Washington becomes president in April of 1789, the federal government is facing massive deficits. We don't even come anywhere close to having a surplus. We still owe France lots of money. We still... We're struggling just to even perform the basic daily operational duties. So this tariff act is the first step in the right direction towards raising money for the federal government to have, not just for short-term, but long-term purposes. You know, for all of uh, Robert Morris's accomplishments, there is something that, it's not a bad thing, but he wasn't the only one. But many of our forefathers did get caught up in the land speculation movement from the late 1780s, and was Robert Morris himself a part of that movement? Yes. He invested heavily with buying and selling millions of acres of land throughout all 13 states and the western territories, a.k.a. the northwest territory of what we know as Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, on one hand, Morris's land holdings were worth up to $2 million, which was a lot of money in 18th century time. However, as public securities rose, his finances plummeted to where he sadly landed in debtor's prison for a period of time. It, does, it turns out, however, that, um, that enough money was raised uh, to get him out of uh, debtor's prison, but sadly, he um, spent the remainder of his life in seclusion, where he died broke. And while that is unfortunate, folks, we do have to keep this in mind about Robert Morris. If it weren't for his financial contributions during the Revolutionary War, the Continental Army may never have been able to have achieved the improbable, that is, defeating the mightiest empire, being the mother country, England. So... Our, some of our forefathers, folks, went above and beyond to do things that most people would never have been able to have done. Robert Morris had, had lots of um, connections, not just from business purposes, but from financial uh, perspectives as well. So if it weren't for those connections, folks, I'm not sure who else could have helped fund um, the American Revolution there were other key players, but Robert Morris was one of them. So we do have him to thank for being able to fund uh, the Revolutionary War when it was greatly needed. He sadly died on May 8th of 1806 at age 72. To have lived to have been 72 back then was still old age. But if you ask me, did Robert Morris lead a good life despite getting caught up in the land speculation movement from the late 1780s? Absolutely so. As I said earlier, I'd say it again. If it weren't for his uh, financial contributions, the improbable would never have happened. So whether we like it or not, yes, our forefathers do have flaw did have their flaws, but they certainly made up for it in so many other ways. 
We may not have to like everything that we sometimes learn, but we still have to appreciate what sacrifices were made. Yes, history is not always pretty, but we still have to learn we still have to learn about it and we have to learn we have to take the good and the bad and we have to learn about the um the differences in, say, 18th century society versus modern-day society. We can't take 18th century standards of conduct and apply that to, say, 21st century standards. While, yes, there were improper practices that probably went on back then, perhaps they weren't as rampant like they are today. Well, we've covered a lot of ground uh, today, folks, and I look forward to being back on the air again uh, next time when we talk about the second um, part to the Pennsylvania delegation, and we will discuss uh, two more signers uh, from Pennsylvania whom signed uh, the U.S. Constitution. But we, um, but when I also think of uh, sage, uh, as I mentioned about Benjamin Franklin being um, a sage, uh, a.k.a. wise man, the first time I learned about sa the term sage was um, through a book I read, it was a. It ended up being a six-volume biography written by the late Dumas Malone, who um, wrote about Thomas Jefferson. He won the 1975 Pulitzer Prize for his uh, work titled uh, Jefferson and His Time. The last of the uh, six-volume series was called uh, Thomas Jefferson, the Sage of Monticello, and what that basically referred to as uh, being the wise man. Well, all of our forefathers were sages, big and small. And Benjamin Franklin was definitely a sage, even Robert Morris was. They were sages in their own unique ways. Well, thank you again, as always, for listening. Uh, all of you are wonderful listeners. And for those of you who know of people who want to podcast, tell them to come to Anchor. It's free, the opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky ceiling. I look forward to being with you all again next time. Take care for now. And stay safe.